I'm Paul Brady. And I'm co-host Dan Belmont, and this is a Northern Wine Odyssey, part of the Cork Report Podcast Network. To listen, search Cork Report in Spotify, Google, or Apple Podcasts, and elsewhere. Here we go. Dan Belmont, welcome to the podcast as co-host. Thank you so much for indulging me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So it's been a minute since uh, since I podcasted, and uh, you know the search for a co-host was a no-brainer. As soon as I found some time to think about it, I immediately called you up and said, "Hey, you want to do this?" And lucky for listeners. You said yes. So let's uh, let's bring listeners up to speed. You are based now in London, England. Correct. But you you came at your at your wine career via New York City. So let's go back a little bit. Sure. Uh, you're from Long Island. You have training in theater, acting, and all sorts of cool stuff. You did the New York City restaurant thing here and there. You end up at Murray's Cheese as the wine and cheese guy there. That's kind of where it got serious. Am I right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I was uh, working actually uh, doing some events for Finger Lakes wineries, uh, you know, doing tasting brand ambassador stuff in New York City. Uh, and I started serving a lot of cheese as I was doing it. And I said, you know what, I should probably learn about cheese uh, to accompany all the stuff I'm doing with wine. And that brought me to Murray's, uh, started out in their uh, cave apprentice program. Uh, and uh, after uh, six months in the caves, about a year on the counter as a cheesemonger, I took over their education department. Uh, it was during that time I started taking my WSET training, level two and level three. Uh, and, um, and yeah, my wife's job uh, brought us over to London from there. And a lot of people always say, oh, my God, why would you leave New York City? And it's like, well, you know, I work in cheese and wine. And Europe's a pretty good place for that kind of stuff. And so um, I flipped it. When I moved to London, I joined a wine bar group. So I was the cheese guy at a wine company as opposed to the wine guy at a cheese company. Uh, and uh, that was uh, six years ago. Yeah. and it's. You know, London is like an annoyingly important city for wine still, kind of like New York City is sort of an annoyingly important city for wine. And I'm saying annoying because, you know, no one's no one's growing any grapes in, in and around London or New York City for the most part. Um, you would have to go a couple hours uh, out, um, but uh, there's still just giant uh, important behemoths in, in the industry in terms of how much wine is purchased in these cities you're, you're spoiled for choice there's no doubt about it yeah and it's i think it's fitting that i met you for the first time in london when i was over there um at uh, for my previous job with the new york wine and grape foundation and i saw you teach a wine class and it was the best new york wine class i ever saw <laughs> so i i you know I, it, and then that kind of started our correspondence uh i think that was back in 2018 yeah sounds about right and uh, at the time, you were you were doing uh, you were doing wine education and probably cheese stuff too for Beatles, which was like a group of different wine bars and shops. Correct. Correct. Yes, Beatles of Borough. They were a, a flagship based at Borough Market, which is kind of cheese epicenter uh, for for London historic market there. Uh, and they had three other locations. And uh, and yeah. Um, Three and a half years with the company. Uh, uh, basically, when I left, I was running education for them exclusively. Um, and then the pandemic happened and everything changed. It did. Uh, and you, throughout the pandemic, and and you mentioned earlier doing some brand ambassador kind of stuff for Finger Lakes wineries. And you're doing that again now, working with the New York Wine and Grape Foundation a little bit as a consultant. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have been doing that throughout the pandemic. How how did the New York wine bug get to you in the first place? Yeah, I, I was with uh, Be Our Guest Hospitality in New York City uh, at their uh, their steakhouse concept at the time was Prime House, New York, Park Avenue South. I was I was Major D and I, you know, three piece suits, the whole thing. And uh, I didn't know anything about wine when I started that role. Um, you know, they gave me the wine list. It's this big leather bound tome. Uh, and I didn't understand what I was reading. I didn't understand why the prices were or what they were. It was terrifying. Um, and so I started, you know, just spending time with the Psalms there. And uh, one of them said, you know, if you really want to, you know, go see some wine without having to, to travel all too far, you should go up to the Finger Lakes. And so um, took a weekend uh, and went up there and 
you know, it was the first place where wine really clicked for me, where I was in a tasting room and, and I was fortunate to be speaking with a winemaker and I was tasting their wine and I was looking out the window at the vines with the lake in the background. And, um, you know, it kind of holistically made sense to me and that, that concept of terroir uh, uh, kind of first clicked there. And, you know, and then I kind of had the opportunity to spend more time with the people in the Finger Lakes. And I said, you know, um, uh, this is this is what I want to do. Uh, this is this is this is it for me. And so, um, you know, it, it's funny. I was a you know a struggling actor at the time, and and while I did uh, a lot of uh, artistically fulfilling work after after university, uh, it wasn't much bank account fulfilling work. And so, you know, that's what brought me to the restaurant group. And and ultimately, you know, when I started doing this wine thing, I said, man, I, I can't believe I just wasted four years of a university education uh, on this theater thing. And then. I got to teach and I said, ah, this is it. I was like, it all makes sense. You know, for me, education is part stand up comedy. It's scripted. It's improv. It's all these skills that I learned. It's empathy. You know, it's, it's, it's understanding the, you know, the position people in the audience have where they may not know something. And, and, um, that, um, you know, just made for some, some really fun, uh, and, and I hopefully effective moments in, in education. And, you know, what's been great is, I, you know, am a, a pretty uh, equal opportunity wine lover when it comes down to it. But New York State still remains the um, lens through which I see the rest of the wine world. It's because it's where I, I got my start, you know. And so I taste Blaufrankisch from Austria. And, you know, I'm comparing it to the first Blaufrankisches I tasted up in the Finger Lakes. And so that's that's a pretty unique perspective. I want to hear a little bit more about your time at Be Our Guest. How, how did you, did you enjoy that experience or not? I'm curious because I have a, a bunch of friends and people who I worked with over the years who came up sort of cutting their teeth in that restaurant group. That was an important restaurant group sure in, was, in New York right. City, certainly in, in the country. Uh, and it was a place where you could really go and develop some chops. Uh, did, did you... Did you have a good time there, or did you hate it? <laughs> uh, I I didn't hate it. It 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 definitely was a was a challenging place to work. Uh, they demanded quite a bit of you, um, and you know Stephen Hansen, who was running it still at the time that I was there, uh, ruled with an iron fist. Uh, and you know there's always the eye in the sky. And as Mater D, the phone would ring, and it could be our quality control department who was testing me to make sure I answer the phone and say this very specific sentence and touch on seven or eight different very specific key points, um, including using my name and, you know, greeting them with a full sentence and, and all of these things. Um, it, it was really interesting. You know, um, it was run like a very intense, well-oiled machine. And so um, that was a very unique uh, experience for me. I hadn't actually worked in restaurants prior. I was I was way out of my depth for a mater d' role for a, a steakhouse that size. There was 300 seats. Um, and uh Having never really um, run a run a floor before, it was it was a lot. But um, you know, trial by fire, which I very much appreciated. Um, I, I I picked up a copy of Kitchen Confidential shortly thereafter. Uh, I bumped into Anthony Bourdain on the New York City street while reading his book because uh, Leal was just right up the road. Um, and I looked at him and I said, "Oh no shit!" I pointed at the book and then we went our separate ways. It was great. Uh, and so for me, that was introductions to kitchens. I mean, I had this, you know, this very barbaric uh, uh, chef team in the back that that terrified me and uh, taught me a lot. And um, yeah, it was, you know, it was it was one of the the institutions of of New York City restaurants at the time, and uh, I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, it's it's one of those places where a lot of managers and good sommeliers and people like that came that I know came out of that out of that group. And I, I always sort of thought of that, like when Stephen Hansen was considered sort of like the, if Danny Meyer was the hospitality restaurateur, he was the good businessman restaurateur. 100%. What are, what are a couple other takeaways? I'm curious because it's always constructive to hear about, you know, well-run restaurants or, or one or two other things that you took away from there that maybe you still think about and could still be, you know, put to use. Yeah, you know, I, I showed up on day one and I said, okay, today I'm going to act like a mater d. That's how I that's how I approached most of my jobs in those those kind of early twenties uh, uh, years, and um, you know, I, I think 
I was I was just wildly impressed. I mean, the the reservation system itself um, was incredibly complicated, but also incredibly uh, detailed. And so I knew where everyone's favorite table was. I knew their wife's name. I knew their children's names. I knew, you know, uh, what their favorite dish was. I knew. Um, you know, their, their very specific drink orders and all of that, just, just, um, by, by clicking on their name. Uh, and so, you know, you get to see this kind of, um, relationship with, with regulars of the restaurants, uh, that, that, you know, some were delightful and some were over awful, you know, uh, and, you know, I think generally, uh, hospitality is, is really important, um, across every, job and, and industry, you know, uh, it's customer service. Uh, and, and for me, I took advantage of it. I started teaching hospitality classes up in the wineries in the Finger Lakes. Um, you know, at that time we're talking 2010, 2011, most of the folks in the tasting rooms didn't have proper wine training. So I was going up and doing wine 101 classes paired with just proper hospitality techniques using full sentences when you greet somebody, eye contact, and then empathy, you know, trying to connect with this person over what's in the glass and, and ultimately make them want to take it home with them and share those stories uh, further. Well, let's go back to, you mentioned like the years 2010, 2011, around then. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting time, I think, for New York wine. Let's, let's uh, riff on that a little bit, because I'm curious as to how you remember that time. So that's, that's around when I started uh, in New York City working in wine. And my recollection is that the identity of a sommelier was really starting to become sort of pop culture almost. And wine was becoming more popular. Those SOM documentaries were coming out. Yep. Uh, you know, people like Robert Parker and the Wine Spectator were still pretty a pretty big deal. And all sorts of other books and things were starting to, to heat up. Social media, um, you know. Twitter, this is before Instagram, uh, was a big becoming a big deal in wine. And when I think back then, to me, that's that's when I really became fascinated with the the pr profession uh, that is the sommelier. And the the big names that I remember, and I'm curious who you remember back back then. I think of like Michael Madrigal, who was running the program at, at Barbulud. He was sort of killing it on Twitter. He had that thing where they would open a Magnum every day and pour something by the glass and it would be announced on Twitter day of, and that sort of, you know, built up momentum for that. Uh, Terroir Wine Bar had opened in 2008 and their second location in 2010. Their Twitter feed like quickly gained around 10,000 followers or something like that and became uh, a sort of a big deal. It was really funny. It was edgy. Paul Greco was kind of on top of the wine world as a celebrity sommelier back then with both the terroir wine bars and summer of Riesling and, mm -hmm. and certainly New York wines played into that and Levy Dalton's podcast and his blog and early writings for eater. It was, it was kind of a good time for, for sommeliers back then. And, and, and then all of a sudden they just started coming out of the woodwork and everybody was becoming a certified sommelier and going after a job uh, that had the title sommelier in it, even if it wasn't really a sommelier position. What, what is your recollection? Cause to me, that's, that 2010, right around then, is kind of when that boom started. Yeah, I, I you know, my perspective, I, I believe, is is fairly unique in the sense that at that time I was broke, you know, <laughs> and and this this was probably the first you know really full time salaried role uh, that I had taken, you know, as a as a again a struggling performer in New York City, and so I never really had the bankroll, you know, uh, to go out and, and experience these wines and these restaurants and these psalms. I remember one of my first days at Prime House, the managers were like, oh. Well, you know, what's your favorite steak in, in New York City? I go, well, why don't you let me taste the one here? And it'll probably be that one, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but you're, you're right. I mean, it was an exciting time. It was, I, I absolutely remember when Paul hit the scene just because he was this kind of, you know, bad boy, rock star, you know, uh, uh, 
going to do what I want and, and kind of spit in the face of it all. And, you know, for me, I was still just kind of wrapping my head around the whole restaurant scene before I even got to dig into the whole Psalm scene. Um, you know, and then I had this, this very unique role at this cheese company too, where even then I was, you know, in the wine industry is the sense that I was buying for all of these classes and events and meeting people and tasting, uh, but, but didn't really dive in from a trade or, you know, industry perspective until I came to London really. That's that's interesting. Who who was who was like when you when you really got into it in London? Who were some of the people over there that were influential that you kind of noticed early on? For me, I, I think I I may have even gravitated more to winemakers as rock stars before psalms as rock stars again this this high-end restaurant experience wasn't something that i had a, a ton of a ton of time with you know uh and so for me i kind of went right to the source you know uh i remember reading um smart <laughs> yeah no you know i remember reading the book summer in a glass uh and that's all about the uh, some finger lakes producers and and I remember- that's a that's a that's a big one and that came out right around then i think yep. it was 2011 uh, I remember when Evan Dawson, I was working at Brooklyn Winery at the time and Evan Dawson came to New York to do like, a, you know, some book events mm-hmm. and Johannes Reinhardt, winemaker at Anthony Road at the time was along with him who he was featured quite extensively in the book. Yes. That book was really important for New York wine. I would say that that's uh, a marker for when I think it turned some kind of corner. Um, you know, I, I, I look, I think about that book as almost like a, a really long glowing New York times feature. It's it's great storytelling. I mean, it really is. It is. It's well-written. Um, and it, and it was like, you know, featured on displays front and center at places like Barnes and Noble. Um, and, and that like, it really did catapult, I think some of those wineries into the, the vernacular of, of wine buyers and, and shops and restaurant buyers and the trade who maybe, weren't really paying attention to New York before, but I want to, I want to go back to something else that you mentioned. So it was the Finger Lakes that, that got you interested, not Long Island. Why is that? Cause <laughs> yeah. you're from Long Island. It, it's true. It's true. Um, so when I graduated high school, I went to university down in North Carolina, not a ton of wine happening down there. Uh, my family actually followed shortly thereafter. And so once I went to university, I never really moved back to Long Island. And so um, for me, my actual very first wine experience, wine country experience was outside of the Charlottesville, Virginia area, Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, and I was doing uh, some summer stock theater at the University of Virginia, um, and I just turned 21, and so I was able to uh, actually go and, and experience wineries. It's it's funny, um, didn't really jump out to Long Island until after those formative Finger Lakes trips already happened. Um, and you know, obviously, I, I have been out to the Long Island wine country several times, uh, many times since, uh, and um, I think there's a lot of great stuff going on there. So that's that's a pretty good. Uh pretty good description of, of your career and life so far. Anything else you want to add before we kind of delve into the topic? Well, I guess just really what I'm working on right now. Basically, the, the pandemic happened. Uh, London went into lockdown. Uh, and so I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna break off and try my own thing, which is, has been a goal of mine for a long time. I've always had this kind of entrepreneurial bug. Um, and so I had friends reach out and say, Dan, you know, where can I get good wine, you know? Um, and I'd say, Oh, go to, um, you know, Wanderlust wine is an importer and, and online retailer here. Uh, Le Cove de Perrin is uh, iconic. They have a great website. Go ahead, check out those guys and they can deliver for sure. And they say, no problem. And 10 minutes would go by and I'd get another message and they say, Dan, I am completely overwhelmed. I don't know what I'm looking at. Um, you know, you know what I like. Can, can you just pick out wine for me? And, and here's the thing. I don't know what everyone likes. I don't, you know, know your palate, your palate is unique to you. Um, but I do know some of the questions that I could ask to make some very educated guesses on what to get people. And this kind of lit a, a light bulb in the, in my brain, uh, for an idea for, for a business. And so, um, I launched goodwinegoodpeople.com and, uh, it started out with just, uh, our flagship product, which is the personal SOM questionnaire. And basically you, you go and you 
choose your uh, your price point, uh, average of 15 pounds a bottle, 20 pounds, 25, 30, 40, 50. Um, you tell me how many bottles you want, three, six, 12 bottles. You can tell me if you want red, white, sparkling, rosé, orange, uh, things like that. And then you tell me a little bit about yourself. There's there's eight questions. When are you typically drinking your wine? Is it with food or is it just hanging out? Um, you know, do you prefer uh, aromas of fruit and flowers or baking spices? Uh, how do you take your coffee? Things like that. And, you know, anything else you feel like sharing? You know, what what's the occasion? Do you need me to pair with a specific meal? Um, and basically, I take those questionnaire responses and I send out wine. And so uh, we launched the website in September of 2020, uh, really kind of mid mid pandemic um, and we were able to put it together with about 150 wines in the portfolio which was great uh, and since then we're just coming up uh, end of the summer will be two years for us trading uh, we've got over 330 wines in the portfolio now the website has a full complete bottle shop so if you want you can just go ahead and browse and search and find wine uh, but those um, those questionnaire packs they're they're still our, our flagship product and yeah we're, we're having a really good time um, the the kind of winemaking community has really, really rallied behind the idea. And uh, we've got a lot of uh, just kind of winemaker videos, just little selfie videos saying hello. I run the website in awe of the people who dedicate their lives to this odyssey, right? That is uh, uh, producing good wine. And it's been a, a great journey so far. Um, we're in the middle of an investment raise right now and hoping to uh, open our own brick and mortar in central London, um, you know, end of this year, early next. Brilliant. I also have more New York state wine than any other retailer in the United Kingdom, which is cool. Um, we uh, created the New York bottle shop, uh, newyorkbottleshop.com, which uh, uh, that's very unique to us. And so, yeah, you know, I stock more American wine than anything else uh, in the portfolio. I think it's, it's probably, I, I believe it to be one of the, the best American wine selections for, uh, you know, bang for your buck too uh, here in the United Kingdom. Uh, and then France, Italy, Spain follows pretty, pretty closely behind there. But, um, you know, we're sticking to our roots. In New York State, we've got uh, some of the classics. We've got Herman J. Weimer. We've got Dr. Constantine Frank. Uh, we've got um, uh, Nathan Kendall. Uh, we've got some of his wines. We've got um, Channing Daughters from Long Island. Channing Daughters is actually uh, really the only Long Island producer with um, legitimate uh, uh, kind of import uh, uh, arrangements here. And so uh, we're able to get a large selection of their wines, which is excellent because they make such a, a wide spread of crazy stuff. So what is the identity of American wine in the on the London wine scene? I mean, London is a tough market. You got some very discerning palates there. You got some very influential people. You have people that have been doing this for you know families for hundreds of years in the wine trade. You got you know France a, a right across the channel there. It is a very important city in the global wine trade. How is American wine looked at there these days? Yeah, I, I think that um, you know one of the big issues is that American wine typically comes in at fairly premium price points, and that's largely the exchange rate and things like that. And you're shipping it across an ocean as opposed to a small channel from from mainland Europe, and so you're always going to compete on a price perspective with with the European you know stalwarts that have been in London for a very, very, very long time. But generally speaking, you know, the, the wine trade here and the average wine drinker is very open to embracing American wine if they like it, you know, and if it's good, there's money being spent by New York too. And so, I mean, just in the last six years, I think uh, I would say 80% of the wines available today weren't available six years ago. Um, you know, I, can claim uh, some introductions uh, and and some successes there, but but I won't take any more credit than I deserve um, because um, there really are some some importers that that took risks and and spent money and and are backing uh, uh, some some really excellent producers. And yeah, we're we're trying some really cool stuff. I've got Osmote on there, who's a new addition to the scene. Uh, we've got uh, Fox Run uh, as well as Red Newt, uh, and so uh, it's a pretty cool selection, really. So when you go out with people, like out to dinner to wherever, wine bar, restaurant that has an extensive list, are people, wine drinkers in London, are they interested in American wine? So I, I do think that they're here in the United States, especially in New York City, you know, the, Euro, the European wines still dominate the, the discourse, but there are great wine drinkers who are excited about domestic wines who they really want to go into that restaurant and get that 
you know, cool old bottle of Ridge Zinfandel or, a, 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 you know, a bottle of Pinot Noir from, from Litteri or, uh, you know, there's enthu- there's great enthusiasm to, to drink California, both classic and new, uh, and certainly uh, what's going on in Washington and Oregon as well, and New York. I, I do find that there is an enthusiasm in a place like New York City when presented with those wines. Do you feel that in London? Absolutely. I think there is, um, people are always looking to discover something new, you know. Uh, what's What's great about New York State is you have cool climate wines. And so, um, you know, those styles are more reminiscent to what folks are used to drinking with their European counterparts. I think if you're an adventurous wine drinker, I think you are pretty, you're pretty open to everywhere. And America, they recognize is just so big, you know, and that there's always so much. And, you know, people forget how big of a powerhouse California is, you know, what's the first thing you think of when you think of California, you think of Napa Valley, but most people don't realize that Napa Valley is only producing 4% of the wine produced in California, you know? Uh, And so it's a big, big, big wide world of wine out there. Uh, And, and London's open to a lot of it. Um, And, and so it's really just, you have to have the right people in place uh, from the importers to the distributors, to the salespeople, to your Psalms that are, that are looking to tell good stories. Um, I was just at a dinner uh, for um, a California producer, Ashes and Diamonds, uh, just earlier this week. And man, we had the room packed full of uh, top London trade. And it was just a wonderful night. We had the uh, the winemaker there and the, the, the winery owners. And even they brought over their chef to do a, a residency for a week, um, just uh, an Ashes and Diamonds pairing dinner, which, uh, you know, with with ingredients brought over from California. And so it's um, it's a really cool time to, to be in wine here, without a doubt, you know. And I think back to 10 years ago, I think, you know, the let's call it the struggles that we were having then about introducing New York state wine to New York city people, you know, it's, it's very similar to what we've been doing five years, six years later here in, in London. Um, You know, I'm pretty happy to say that, that New York state wine is, is very much part of the trade vernacular. uh, And we're, we're converting, uh, uh, you know, wine drinkers uh, every day. So it's good stuff. Okay, you, you, you mentioned something earlier about how uh, London wine drinkers are more than likely thinking about European wines as their benchmark. So I got to tell you, and this will sort of bring us into the topic we had discussed, here, having set up a shop of my own now up in the Hudson Valley, you know, far just far enough away from New York City um, that the influence is no longer really New York City, the majority of people who come in who may have not considered uh, specifics about wines when shopping, who kind of just order fire, yeah, I'd like a red wine, you know, something bold like a Cabernet. That is what I hear more more often than than anything else. You know, occasionally someone will just straight up ask for Pinot Noir or or whatever else. But more often than not, it is, I'm looking for a red wine, bold, Cabernet. Those are words that I hear a lot. And as you know, in New York, in great years, we make excellent Cabernet and blends with the Bordeaux varieties, primarily out in Long Island. I absolutely love those wines. I've been privileged to taste a lot of them, uh, many of them with 10 plus years of age on them. I think they age gracefully right up there with the heavies from Napa and Mm -hmm. Bordeaux, but those wines are expensive. Because they're real wines. And if you have come up buying under $20 Cabernets from big liquor stores or grocery stores, those aren't really real wines. And I have to, I don't really care anymore. I'm not even going to say I have to unfortunately have a conversation with people about that because it doesn't matter. Uh, I feel like I have my own hospitable way of doing it such that it doesn't get weird. Um, And because the other thing that everybody wants is they want, to drink responsibly. They want wines that have been produced sustainably by good people. And, you know, big liquor is a thing. Big wine is a thing. So there's plenty of factory produced, you know, big, bold wines that have been twisted in every which way to, to get sort of a sweet, rich palate. Because if, if you're spending less than $20 on red wine from California, let's be honest, that's what you're getting. Am I wrong? 
Uh, no, not at all. Even this weekend, I had a, a customer, new customer, reach out to me, um, sent a note after I sent her order. Uh, and she is from Wales. Uh, and she said, I have been a lifelong bottom shelf supermarket wine drinker. And then a couple of weeks ago, I went to a proper wine tasting, and you know, pairing menu at a top restaurant. And then I went back to my old habits and I can't do it anymore. She's like, it ruined me. And I was like, oh, you got ruined, but ruined in the best way, you know? And I was like, oh, I just want to ruin so many more people, you know? Uh, because once you once you see the light, once you understand how good good wine can be, um, I think that's when it's um, you know when light bulbs start to go off. And it certainly was for me. I mean, I was drinking absolute garbage in my youth, you know. <laughs> and and then you start to taste these wines that are that are made by good people in the right ways. And uh, I think it's I think it's worth it. You know, it's funny. The average price uh, spent on a bottle of wine here in the UK is currently six pound ninety nine. Uh, so seven pounds a bottle. And so that, that you, where are you getting a California Cabernet for that cost in London? No, getting uh, maybe country of origin at best, otherwise, you know, geographically untraceable wine. You know, I also always recommend to look and see where a wine has been bottled. Because if it's not bottled at the source, you know, I'm not really interested. Um, you know, when you break down all the costs inherent in a bottle of wine like that, for the UK, there's import duty, which is 2.23 pounds on a still bottle of wine and nearly three pounds on a bottle of sparkling wine. That cuts into a £6.99 bottle quite a bit. Then you have label, glass, closure capsule, shipping, labor, profit. You know, by the time it's all said and done, what you're putting into your body, the, the wine itself, it's pennies. It's, it's unremarkable. You know, so I encourage people to spend a bit more and really see how good, good wine can be. You'll get vineyard workers paid an equitable wage. You'll get, you know, natural vineyard treatments instead of herbicides and pesticides. You'll get hand-picked, hand-sorted grapes. In the case of Cab Sav, you'll get real oak barrels, you know, instead of oak chips or flavoring. You'll get quality fruit that's been ripened instead of sweetened and, and you know, the color changed by mega purple. You'll get profits going to real people, uh, small family-owned businesses instead of Mr. CEO's inflated salary, <laughs> uh, sustainability, it goes on and on. You know, the average uh, price spent on a bottle of wine at my website at goodwinegoodpeople.com is 24 pounds, and I'm proud that my customers understand the inherent value that you're going to get there. Um, listen, at the, at the end of the day, your personal budget is your own. But the good stuff, you know, that just enriches you and your experience on so many levels beyond taste. Yeah, and so I suspect that your experience might be a little bit different when it comes to what people identify as their benchmark for, for, for tasting wine. Because what I have realized, having now moved away from the New York City market, that most people's benchmark is, are these California wine, these you know massively produced California wines that we're sort of talking about, as opposed to France, like which is weird for me because I, I came up drinking French wine, and and not just because I spent time in France, but I I don't know I bought inexpensive Cote Giron and things like that at Trader Joe's and, and whatnot. So for whatever reason. I came up with more experience and more of a palate for French wine, but that is not really the case anymore. Yeah. The 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 thinking here in the Hudson Valley, where I where my place is, is very very much California Cabernet driven. And sometimes I have to say to people when I'm trying to help them find a, a red wine in particular for their palate, I I, I have to say, do you drink French wines? And you wouldn't believe how often they say, not really. And I, and I have to then, hopefully in a hospitable way, educate a little <laughs> bit as to the climate of New York and how our wines are more akin to continental European wines than anything that's going on on our West Coast. And it's, it really blows my mind because like literally sometimes I have to play this. I have to joke with people and be like, well, have you ever heard of a little place called France? Uh, <laughs> they make some wine there. Um, and, and people's palates are very West coast dominated these days. When you, when you move away from sort of the, at least the New York city center where I came up in the wine industry. Mm -hmm. So it's been an adjustment for me in terms of, 
having to change my way of hopefully again hospitably talking to people and that of course does you know continue to just make this job pushing a boulder up a hill which when it comes to new york wine we've still got a lot of work to do as great as the wines now are and they've come a long ways in the past couple of decades in terms of the quality just being that much better and the quantity of of great producers now you know it's you're you're not really more, much more than an emerging wine region if you only have one or two good producers you know it takes dozens and we have that now uh in in new york but it's it's been wild to me that people's palates have in here in the u.s have come so far from the sort of classic french uh style of wines but i'm guessing in london that you still have the that french style to kind of work with as a reference to new york wines yeah i think that's that's definitely one of the big differences i mean i think the the numbers i think it's 75 percent of american wine is drank in america right so very little of it actually gets out, um, you know, 85% of American wine is produced in California, right? And so you start to see how much California wine the country is drinking. Uh, and so when I first moved to uh, London and people would say, oh, well, you know, you, New York City, you must have a ton of great wine there too. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And they're like, well, what's the difference? You know, what's the difference between there and here? And I go, well, if you look up here, I have eight bottles from America. <laughs> if you were in a uh, retail shop of similar size in New York City, we'd have shelves upon shelves upon shelves of American wine, right? Um, and so I think that's the big difference is how, how, how much that, that skews, um, you know, once you're, once you're outside of the country. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, it, it's funny, we, we wanted to talk about, about Cabernet Sauvignon, and I think it is a uh, it's a tough grape. It's, it's, it's actually not, it's not my favorite. I mean, um, it, I don't have anything, I don't have anything against it. Uh, I think I, I think I, I find it most brilliant when it's blended. Um, I really have been gravitating to lesser oak styles, older oak styles. Um, you know, and then an article came out today that I, I forwarded you earlier and it said that, um, uh, you know, Bordeaux said that climate change has been great for Bordeaux over the last 10 years because they've had so many warm vintages that they don't normally get. Right. And so it's like, OK, so what you were able to push the alcohol level from 13.5 up to 14.5. And that's how we're defining the best wines. And so then you have those wines and they're not drinkable in their youth. And so, you know, it's, it's tough for me. I, I, I send out so much of my wine from the website where I don't, I have a couple of sentences, you know, and it's a short attention span. They might not even read my tasting notes. And so I don't really have the opportunity to tell people to decant their wine, you know? And so um, pretty much I have to send out wines that are ready to drink. Right. That's a, that's a unique challenge for me, I suppose. But, um, you know, are, are you happy to drink New York State Cabernet Sauvignons the, the year they're they're released? I mean, I, I happen to really like Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, maybe because I came up drinking Bordeaux um, when it wasn't so prohibitively expensive. Uh, and I like California Cabernet too. When I go out to California, I love California wines. I should say, I didn't mean to shit on them earlier when I was talking about, you know, massively produced factory wines. There are those, I don't particularly have any interest in those, but, uh, I, I love California. I think pound for pound, it's the most beautiful state in our country. And I love to go out there to eat and drink. And, and especially I like old California wines. I love to, I love to find Zinfandel, you know, with, 10, 20 years of age on it. I love what's how they're bringing back the Mission grape. Um, that's super interesting, right? Because there's lots of old plantings of that with really cool maturity. And yeah, it's it's really fun to, to both drink classics like Cab and Zin and Merlot and, and then new and exciting stuff like having found these rare and old vineyards uh, of grapes like Mission and Chenin Blanc and other oddball varieties that were planted uh, way back when. And yeah, I, I, I was lucky. One of my favorite events that I did uh, two year, the two years in a row that I was with uh, the Wine and Grape Foundation were Long Island red wines with 10 plus years of age on them. And we, we did a, a, both a trade and a consumer uh, lunch and dinner 
at Kraft. Um, and the, the last one, this was right before the pandemic started, Tom Colicchio cooked at. This was like my magnum opus of wine events that I ever did. I mean, it was epic. Like the wines from Long Island, from, you know, the best producers, we're talking Pomanoc and McCary and Vidal and Wolfer and Chenin Daughters and, you know, all, all our, so many of the, of the, of the greats out there. And so the wines were stunning and yeah, they're expensive, but they're, they should be there. I, I hold those wines up there with the best red wines from California and, and Bordeaux at, at this point. And I think that those, uh, you know, lunches, I mean, there were, I, I loved watching the, getting the feedback from the other members of the trade who were at those lunches because I, you know, everybody for the most part was, you know, going, wow. Yeah. You're, these wines really are that. So I do like Cabernet Sauvignon, and I do love to to sell uh, those varieties, Cabernet, Merlot, Malbec, things like that, mostly from Long Island. There are a few uh, from some of the other regions in New York, but to get the ripeness and the, the kind of tannic and full-bodied edge that people like, you do have to spend kind of, you know, close to $30 or more. If if your magnum opus, this this event was was showing wines, showing Cabernet Sauvignon with ten years of age. I mean, how do we bring that experience to the average consumer? Is that when these wines are at their best? How do we teach people to one spend thirty dollars more maybe on these wines to begin with, but then sit on them until they really reach their 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 peak maturity? And and so I guess you know I just don't know. We can talk, you and I can talk, the trade can talk about this. Oh, we tasted these wines, they're outrageous, they're 10 years, but you can't find them. And so, so you know, if if the majority of wine produced worldwide, 99% of the wine in the world is, is meant to be drank within its first two years, you know, and, and I think that's what the average consumer knows, you know, do do we have just a communication problem when it comes to Cabernet Sauvignon? I don't know. Well, I... I think that uh, it's maybe changing, but very, very slowly. And that, that's kind of how we decided to talk about this was based because there was a Vine Pair podcast recently titled, Can Will Cabernet Sauvignon Ever Be Dethroned? Basically. And the conclusion that they came to pretty much was no, it will likely always remain sort of supreme, I guess, at least uh, here in the U.S., and I, I think that's mostly just because of two things. One would be the marketing muscle that our West Coast wine industries have, and also the amount of volume that is produced. I, I do believe that volume is something that we don't talk about enough when it comes to what wines are dominating. The wines that are dominating are going to be the ones that you can make the most of and sort of get them out to the most people, uh, to your point. And you know we can talk about the judgment of Paris, 1976, and all that, and how amazing it was that the the California wines beat the French wines or whatever. But why they took off was it really the judgment of Paris, or was it more of a coincidence that well, okay, so what happened? The judgment of Paris happened, and then there was uh, what? I don't think there was that much press at the time of the event. I think there was something in like Time Magazine or National Geographic. Like there there was some press. I don't remember exactly what, but now there's been movies made and it's just something that has been glorified as this big deal event. But I can remember listening to uh, Aubert de Villan, the proprietor of Domaine Romani di Canti in Burgundy, of course, who was at that event. And he described it as more of kind of just like a like a social gathering as opposed to some big deal move mountains uh, wine industry event. Um, so I think that the fact that California wines really took off is, is cannot simply go back to that one competition. I think the fact that the environment, the climate out there at that time, and for the most part up until these fires have just been bananas. Uh, they have an environment to produce a lot of fruit forward, good wine. And that volume has, has made it such that Cabernet Sauvignon will probably not be dethroned as, as uh, the vine pair cast uh, concluded. Sure. Now, a lot of it is good marketing, right? We took this otherwise just a casual social gathering and turned it into this monumental, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, industry uh, world changing event. Um, then you have Parkerization, right? 
right? Finally putting a, or, or starting to put a, a hundred point scale to it and Cabernet Sauvignon's topping the scales most of the time because it fit his ideal flavor profile um, in terms of strength and body and all that. Um, they always talk um, in, in the WSET and um, I took an American wine course and um, they talk about 60 Minutes did a, a segment in 1990 and it was called the French paradox. And it's like, how do the French just eat this very, very, very rich cuisine all the time. And yet they live longer than Americans. And while I'm sure there's a lot of different reasons for that, <laughs> the one that the, the 60 minutes actually drew a big conclusion to was, uh, the antioxidants in red wine that they drink. Right. And so from there, I think it was, uh, 20 years easily where red wine consumption just continued to increase in America. Um, you know, and Cabernet Sauvignon is the world's most widely planted red grape without a doubt. And so, um, yeah, it probably won't. It's just, I, I, it's so funny because for me, it, it, it is, it has, it has issues, right. And it's going to have more issues when, when climate change continues to push. I mean, do you, are you going to be ready to drink a, a 17% Cabernet Sauvignon? I don't, I don't think I am. I don't even, I really want a 15.5, you know? Well, and, and that kind of brings us back to the other uh, topic that we had discussed, which is flagship grape varieties. And are they helpful? People seem to really love to fixate on them, trade consumers, I guess all of us for whatever reason. And when we talk about New York, I mean, it was Finger Lakes Riesling that sort of uh, helped give New York a push, certainly. And there's sort of a partisan divide up in the Finger Lakes. And we can talk about the Finger Lakes for a moment uh, because it is the largest region. I tend to not like to fixate on the Finger Lakes. And I like to just think about New York as sort of a, a, a... Sure. A whole state of wine. Um, but there is certainly a, a camp of wineries that would love to just talk about nothing but Riesling. But then you have wineries that do want to celebrate the diversity of what we have to offer. And I'm on team diversity. I do believe that there is so much cool and exciting wine being produced in so many different styles in New York, sparkling wines, uh, certainly white wines, both sweet and dry. Uh, both, you know, light and sort of more medium and snappy reds that you can drink uh, with a chill on them, fortified wines, dessert wines. Like you can make a great tasting menu of five courses and pair extraordinarily different wines rather than, well, I mean, I don't want a five course Riesling only menu. I mean, I don't want a five. Well, maybe actually, maybe I, I kind of do want a five course Cabernet Franc menu, but that, that might just be a, a recent obsession. Um, but, you know, I mean, what do you think diversity or should we fixate on Riesling? You know, I'm well, I'm all about diversity. Uh, 100%. I mean, I did a, a trip uh, to the North Fork or both forks uh, of Long Island in November and I tasted the most wild spread of varieties you put these 10 varieties in a sentence together and you're like, you traveled across the whole world. You know, I, I had Malbec, I had Merlot, I had Cap Sauve, I had Riesling, I had Cap Franc, I had Auxerrois, I had uh, uh, Melon de Bourgogne, I had Tempranillo. I, I mean, and, and these are all grown within 10 miles. I mean, you know, New York has this, this, this bounty of diversity, as you said, that um, should be celebrated. And um, for me, if I was going to pick a flagship variety uh, for the state. And, and unfortunately, I mean, most people do lump the state together when they talk about it, at least at least in this, this kind of market. Um, you know, I would say that we should be leaning into Cab Franc because it actually does perform incredibly well in most of our regions particularly the three major ones, you know, it does great on Long Island, does great in the Hudson Valley, does great in the Finger Lakes. You know, Riesling it, it can be grown in all three, absolutely, but I think it shines brightest in in the Finger Lakes. And so, you know, I think for me, I would rather, I would rather continue to, to champion the diversity because, you know, we are a young modern industry and, and we don't, you know, there's still a lot to experiment with. And I think some of those small batch experiment, experimental batches are some of the most exciting wines being produced today. Do you think that we should be leaning into Cab Franc because it is a great that can unite the the major growing regions in the state? 
I, I am of that opinion, and I think it, it it was particularly evident to me on this last trip. Um, obviously, I am a, I've been drinking Finger Lakes uh, uh, Cab Franc for some time now, uh, but my trip I did both Long Island and Hudson Valley on the same trip, and they were standouts in in both regions. And said, "Oh my God, there's this through line now, right?" Um, and I think that with Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, being so much more powerful and perhaps more finicky vintage to vintage as, as opposed to Cab Franc. Um, I, I think it's, it's Cab Franc's time to shine. And, and you're, you're in favor of sort of using that to unite the state. And so New York becomes Cabernet Franc land, whereas Oregon is Pinot Noir land and California is Cabernet Sauvignon land. Me personally, no. Me personally still wants to talk about all the weird and wild stuff you can get in all the different little corners. Um, You know, I think from a marketer's perspective, it would make more sense to unite the state over Cab Franc than it would over Riesling. Totally. Because, I mean, at least at my shop and just in in general, we don't need to show data to know that red wine still kind of dominates the the American palate, certainly. Um, and And I love what's going on with Cab Franc in New York. They're the I, my shelves are full of them and they're delicious and they come in different styles and the rosé that's being made is quite awesome as well. And, and there's some pet nets and some sparkling stuff happening with the grape and, and performs well with oak and without totally. And in the end, these wines are just delicious and like with their acid and their earthiness, there's not really another place that I can think of outside of the Loire Valley that's offering this level and this amount of Cabernet Franc. Can you? Mm, nope, not off the top of my head. So yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that that's the right thing to do. I, I don't know that we really need to to you know become the Cabernet Franc state. Um, so so here's the thing. I did. Um, I spoke on behalf of Sam Filler, who had to step out last minute uh, at a conference, um, and the. The name of the conference is, is actually escaping me at the moment, but um, it was a panel discussion with myself, um, and it was Elaine Chukin-Brown from uh, Jancis Robinson and uh, heads from Vermont, uh, Virginia, and I believe Maryland. And, um, you know, I, I went on about diversity, and then they got a question from the audience, who I'm pretty sure I know who it was. But I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't call them out. But um, you know, challenged this very question: Should we be a state that is, you know, that is championing diversity, or should we all back the same player? And I very much know this person's opinion. Um, and he challenged me to to pick another uh, uh, world wine, you know, player that uh, doesn't have a flagship grape. And I it caught me off guard. I didn't have the answer. But then I came back to it, and I actually said Italy. I was like, Italy has, you know, boasts that we have over a thousand indigenous grape varieties. And if you look at my Italian portfolio on the website, sure, there's, you know, some regional players, you know, your, your Sangiovese, your Nebbiolos, uh, your, your Gavis, things like that. But, you know, there's just as many, if not twice as many random ass grape varieties that I've never heard of until I tried this one wine. And I feel like when it comes to Italian wine, you could hand anybody a bottle of Italian wine and it doesn't matter what the grape is and they're going to drink it and embrace it because it's Italian, right? And so like what what is stopping us from just saying this is New York wine, it's from the Finger Lakes, it's damn good, you know? I have a I have I'm selling a Dachenac from from Osmote, you know. <laughs> no one no one's heard of that. No one's heard of that grape and and it's, you know, and don't even get we don't we don't we don't have to get started on the hybrid, you know, situation, but um there there's a lot to unpack. Well, I think the New York Italy comparison is a good one. I I like to use that too. Um although I I'll, I'll push back a little bit just for sake of podcast. Uh I mean Italy does have its big brands. The ones that I hear most often when people come into my shop and they don't know it's an all New York wine shop yet, uh, Chianti or Brunello. Mm-hmm. People will, will sort of just let, let that roll off the tongue pretty easily. Yeah, I'm looking for a red wine. I don't know, like Chianti or Brunello. Like, so I, I feel like there is big brand recognition coming from Italy that there's still n- not yet from New York, other than maybe Riesling and maybe like Long Island Rosé, 
Well, yeah, and I think that's where it's going to develop. I think you're going to end up having your your stalwarts, your your rose your your roses from Long Island, your uh, uh, Riesling from the Finger Lakes, your Cab Franc statewide, let's say, you know. But but I'm hoping that that's just the gateway that you know again gets us beyond that kind of lazier marketing into you know New York makes great wine and and it's diverse and there's something for every palate. So to sort of wrap up, what do you think is the hospitable way or what would your hospitable way be to talk to someone in a short amount of time in a, in a, in a normal business interaction, whether it be online or in person, when, when they fire off Cabernet Sauvignon, bold red, that's what I'm looking for, but it's got to be from New York. What What's your move? So I'd... I'm probably going to, well, one, I don't have any issue with recommending a old Cabernet from Cabernet Sauvignon from Long Island, right? Or, or one of those blends. I, you know, I always, when it comes to left bank, right bank, I'm almost more a right bank guy. Typically I tend to tend to prefer Merlot. And so for me, I'm going to, you know, tout that, oh, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon is great. When this producer brand blends in a little Merlot and a little Cab Franc, now we're really talking and you're getting it at 13.5%. You're not going to get banged over the head with alcohol, but you're still getting full flavor, right? From there, I think you can get into your, your, your single Cab Franc, uh, you know, uh, single variety Cab Francs, um, being that, you know, this is the parent grape variety, right? Um, and it has that same peppery backbone, you know, um, but it's it's lighter, it's fresher, it's going to pair better with your food, you know. Um, I don't think, um, yeah, I don't think it's it's too big of a stretch, you know. Um, I think what was most exciting for me for my recent Long Island trip was actually the the more judicious use of oak, whereas ten years ago I might have my opinion might have been that that there was too much oak usage, uh, and everything just tasted like a cedar cigar box, right? Whereas now we're getting more freshness, more fruit, we're getting 13 and a half percent alcohol. And that's, that's pretty awesome. So, um, yeah, maybe that's a little bit too long winded of a, of a, of a, you know, a pitch, but that's, I'd, I'd probably just, uh, corner them and, and make them listen. <laughs> Do you think that let, let's, you know, use uh, a London consumer just as our barometer. Do you think that celebrating diversity in New York and in Italy, is that useful for you to pitch to, to the London consumer? Can you, can you successfully do that? I think so. I, I think that, you know, Europe, the European market definitely understands this concept of terroir, you know, to a point, you know, let's, let's, let's call a spade a spade. Um, but you know, the sense of place, right. And I've always been a big proponent of the sense of place that, that New York has, you know, if you look up and down the east coast of the Americas, you know, once you kind of go north of Mendoza, there's not a whole heck of a lot going on until you get to these very, very tiny, very, very random, very special, very specific places in New York State that are producing terroir-driven wines. And it's because of the, the confluence of these, you know, land formations you know, uh, adjacent to bodies of water that are mitigating climate and, and making exciting wine regions. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the marketing pitfalls is always the, oh, if we can make it here, we can make it everywhere. It's not that it's a bad place to make wine. It's a fantastic place to make wine. It's a special place to make wine. And so um, I, I would technically, I would lead with that before I'd lead with variety. Well, and I, I think that, we still don't have a culture of regional table wine drinking in the United States. You know, if I go to a hip restaurant in San, San Francisco, like I'm 99% sure that the SOM or server is going to, is going to try to sell me a French wine. And when I go to California, I'm I, like, I want nothing but California wine. I love drinking regionally. If I go to England, I want to drink some of these sparkling wines that I'm reading about all the time. Oh, yeah. If I go, if I go to, Oregon. I want to drink Oregon wine. If I go to France, Italy, Germany, obviously, like it's, it's it's an easy point to make. But we don't do as the locals do, right? And I, and I think that's something else that should be uh, explored more, and that we should we should make more noise about this. When you're in the Hudson Valley, you should drink 
Hudson Valley wines. When you're in New York City, you should take advantage of all the great wine lists there and drink something from New York from anywhere in the state. When you're up in the Finger Lakes, drink Finger Lakes. I love the idea of New York wine becoming more of a regional table wine around the East Coast, but it's we're not there yet. And I think that's important. And I think that that will help the conversation and the consumer to be to be encouraged to drink regionally will help the understanding of this is real wine and I'm drinking it from the time and place that I'm in right now. Yeah. I, I think, you know, food has certainly gotten us there. I mean, you know, far, farm to table, local, um, you know, hopefully the wine will follow. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap. So Dan, I'm super excited to have you as co-host uh, with me. It's, uh, you know, it's like having a gym buddy, uh, you know, to, to get that workout in. So uh, very grateful to have you along for this ride. Thanks for this first episode. Looking forward to, to doing the next one. Uh, shout out to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com. Dan, see you next time. Well, better as a podcast host than I am a gym buddy. <laughs> see you soon, mate. Thanks.